Welcome to the Matthias Shea Barker podcast. My name is Matthias. I'm a psychotherapist from Spokane, Washington, and this is a podcast about mental health and moving towards what's meaningful despite hardship. Well, this is the last episode of season one of the Matthias J. Parker podcast. I'm really excited. Um, it's been a crazy year. We're wrapping it up. Uh, next year, I'll be back with new topics and new guests. I have lots of new ideas that are front of mind. I'm excited to explore and unpack them with you. Um, I think we're, we're really ending it here on a bang with Dr. Amen, though. He's um, a multi-New York Times bestseller. He's a psychiatrist, uh, has many different specialties, but the one I'm most excited to talk about today is his insights into Alzheimer's and brain health and the role of nutrition in all those. And that's what we discussed today. It's pretty cool. Um, it's really a space that I see myself getting more involved in um, in the next year. I'm really at the beginning of that journey, though. I'm really at the mark of the path and researching things like nutrition and the effect of nutrition on brain health. And so I would really recommend that as you listen um, to the podcast and you hear different recommendations, that you, of course, do your own research, that you consult with your doctor, um, your personal uh, provider before making big changes to your health, big changes to your diet. Um, but I'm excited. I'm, I'm really in the position of a learner right now, really trying to kind of reach out to people that I respect and, and have conversations to expand my knowledge around nutrition um, and its role in both preventing mental illness and recovering from mental illness. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited. It's, it was a really fascinating conversation uh, for me. So uh, we discussed some of Dr. Amos' research. He's, like I said, he's an expert in the field. He's done tens of thousands of individual brain scans um, and has provided individual care uh, informed by those uh, scans, not just like the ideas and the stories that come out of people's mouth, which of course are important, um, but also by the actual infrastructure of their brain, the, the ways that it is or isn't functioning. Um, so he talks a bit about that and his uh, use of spec scans and pairing those two um, technologies to be able to, I don't know, give a good treatment to people to help people move towards their goals, to move towards what's meaningful. It's just great. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation. I'm honored to have him on. Uh, make sure to grab his new book that's being released in March. It's called You Happier. Hello, Dr. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. I'm thankful to talk to you. Well, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you why I, um, I sent you an email and wanted to talk. Um, I recently took a 23andMe test, and a lot of those tests include some of the genetic markers that allow you to kind of observe some of your health and maybe if you had genetic markers that predisposed you to certain health risks. And um, one of the ones that came back for me was that I had both genetic markers for Alzheimer's. And on the site, it said that it gave me about a 60 to 70% chance of having the disease later in life. And, and that was a bit alarming. That was a bit surprising. Um, well, maybe not surprising. My, both my grandparents actually have the, uh, the disease. And so I have my grandpa on my mom's side who has Alzheimer's. He got it in his fifties actually, but he was a pretty heavy drug addict for a lot of years. And so my, my guess is that escalated things um, significantly. And then um, I also, you know, have my grandmother um, on my dad's side who um, had dementia and that which kind of evolved into Alzheimer's later on as well. And so I, I suppose when I found out that I had the disease, it was um, surprising and not surprising. Well, have the disease it, that I have the potential for developing the disease later. That that it was surprising and not surprising. Um, I guess what I'm saying is it was a bit of a wake up call. And when I started researching and looking into um, 
I don't know, just the, the people in the field who are talking about brain health and talking about ways that you can prevent and even actions that you can take now to stave off some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's. You were one of the first people that came up. Um, you, your colleagues, such as um, Dr. Hyman and Dr. Brenneman, um, it seems to be kind of this movement um, rising up, maybe in the popular eye in the past 10 years, although all of you have been very active since long before then, of saying like, hey, there's something we can do here. There's something we can do if uh, either if you're like me and you find out way, way ahead of time that you have the genetic markers for something like that versus people maybe that are later on in life and then start to have issues with their memory or start to be in decline. And, and there's something you can do. There's something um, you can do to maybe have a bit more time with your family. And um, yeah, so I guess my question, maybe to start, <laughs> just I know it's a loaded question, just starting off with my story there, but um, I think there's a lot of people now that are my age that are discovering some of these genetic markers and really are wondering what to do because I'm not in a space where I'm having cognitive decline. I'm not in a space where I need to necessarily have kind of a last ditch effort to change things. It's I'm really in a preventative stage where I can have decades of my life, you know, making constructive choices. And uh, yeah, I guess that's that's maybe my position. What comes to mind for you as you hear where I'm at and what would you say to people maybe in my position? Well, if you knew a train was going to hit you, yeah. yeah, would you get out of the way? And that's where you're at. Mm -hmm. And I think it's super smart. And some people would go, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Let's go get drunk. Mm -hmm. That is not the smart way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the other thing is I'm vulnerable. What can I do to prevent this from happening? And that's where you're at. That's where I'm here and you're at. It's um, okay. This is one of my vulnerabilities. I have genetic risks to be obese. I have like 67% chance of being obese, but I'm not. Why? because I don't get into the behaviors making it more likely that I am. Um, I have genetic markers for heart disease, but I just had a CAT scan on my heart and it's fine because I don't get into the behaviors making it likely to be so. If you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it, if it's headed for trouble, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. We know what they are. Bredesen talks about 36. I'm like, that's sort of hard for people to get their brains around. Um, and how old are you? I'm 29. Yeah. So I'd get a spec scan as soon as you could and see. Mm -hmm. So what is actually the health of your brain? Yeah. I saw um, a woman, an actress a couple of weeks ago, her parents have Alzheimer's disease. She's 40. She doesn't want it. And when we looked at her brain, her brain looked healthy. She's not headed for darkness. And she has the double E4 gene combination as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you get to pick what your brain is like going forward by the behaviors you do between now and then. Mm -hmm. You get to pick. But for you, you don't have a lot of mar margin. So now is the time. 29 is like a perfect 
time. And and if you knew when you were 13 and you were smart, you would like, uh, okay, let's not engage in some of the behaviors that accelerate my risk. Yeah. And my 20s were full of, uh, I don't know, those behaviors. Lots of fatty food, lots of fried chicken, lots of burgers, um, alcohol, smoking. I mean, it was, I had a great old time of it. I mean, no hard drugs or anything. That was truly damaging in that severe of a way but i mean anything that's legal that is harmful i i took full advantage of it was um and so that's maybe a part of the wake-up call too is just noticing the contrast because i don't know maybe I, sh- I should start here and then and then we'll continue at this point but i i would suppose maybe people listening that aren't familiar with a lot of this might be a little bit skeptical that eating or your diet would have a huge impact on something like alzheimer's so would you maybe catch us up a little bit for people who are listening that aren't familiar with that, that I don't know, what is that connection there? What do we know about the connection between what you eat and how your brain behaves? Well, your brain uses 20 to 30% of the calories you consume and your nutrients are building a healthy brain or destroying your brain. The Mayo Clinic did a study that people who had a fat-based diet now, it was a healthy fat-based diet, nuts, seeds, healthy oils, avocados, green leafy vegetables, had 42% less risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. People had a protein-based diet, um, had a 21% less risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. But people who had a simple carbohydrate-based diet, think the standard American diet, bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, sugar, fruit juice, um, a 400% increased risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. 400% increased. Yeah, because of what it does to your blood sugar levels. Mm. This is so important to eat in a way that optimizes the nutrients available to your body and decreases the potential poisons and toxins for your body. Mm-hmm. So the reason to eat organic is you're not consuming pesticides because you have a hundred trillion bugs in your gut mm-hmm. and pesticides damage your microbiome. And so they go, oh, these are safe for human cells. Yeah, but they're not safe for human microbiome bugs, right? The bugs in our gut that digest our food and make neurotransmitters and so on, pesticides damage them, which is why in the last couple of years there have been huge lawsuits against Roundup uh, because it causes cancer. But it does other bad things to your body as well. Mm-hmm. Um, people who eat colorful fruits and vegetables, right? So if you really think of a healthy brain-enhancing diet, colorful fruits and vegetables, high-quality omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, If you eat meat, you know, make it grass-fed, hormone-free, antibiotic-free meat. So really high-quality meat and probably less of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then really work to optimize your omega-3 fatty acid level. Something like 97% of the population is low in omega-3 fatty acids. Wow. Well, and this kind of opens up 
to maybe another complicated piece of this because yeah, I've read those same studies and, and that's what really turned me on to your work was that, oh, um, there's a lot of correlative data between different kinds of diets and different kinds of risk factors for Alzheimer's, but there's like 10 or 20 different like suggestions <laughs> that all seem to have common ground, but then, but then seem to be really different. And just knowing also that nutritional um, science is just really hard to nail down because you have so many different factors at play. Um, you know, when it says to like, okay, should we do more? Should, is like, is red meat okay? Is it, is it not? There's people like on carnivore diets that think we should be doing only red meat if you're in autoimmune, you know, situations. There's people who um, strict vegan and vegetarian or vegetarian diets. That's the best way to go. It seems like there's so many different suggestions around here's the best way to optimize that. And it's so hard, at least maybe for the layman or someone who doesn't have maybe like a biological understanding about how these things affect your body to nail down and be like, okay, this is the trustworthy source. This is the first for sure one I'm going to go to. So what you just listed there was, you know, there's some just general, like, you know, studies that have been done around, okay, if you have like a very vegetarian based diet, if you have a diet that includes meat, and then of course, like the carbohydrate, normal American diet, you can make some pretty general calls um, as far as those correlations to Alzheimer's. And then you also pointed out just in your scans that preservatives and food dyes and and, and the such can be harmful as well. But where do you, maybe where do you start with how to piece apart all the different suggestions in this nutrition space when it comes to building a diet for a healthy brain? What, what do you think about that? Well, I think there's some overarching principles that work for everybody. That it starts with this one question. Do I choose foods I love that love me back. You're in a relationship with food. And is I don't know if you've ever been in a bad relationship. I was married for 20 years to someone who didn't really like me very much. And I'm not doing that anymore. Right? My wife now is my best friend and um I'm never going to do that again in a relationship. I actually at work I have the no asshole rule. I don't get to be an asshole and neither do you. And I'm only going to have a relationship with food that I love because I like to eat, but that loves me back, that it's I'm getting something from this relationship more than obesity or inflammation or toxicity. So, so really thinking about what I put in my body. And then water, because your brain is 80% water. So drinking 8, 10 glasses a day is a good thing. Um, High-quality calories. Calories matter. Um, there are a lot of people, you know, I fight with them all the time. Oh, calories don't matter. And I just think they're crazy. And I'm a psychiatrist, so I get to diagnose crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, you can have 4,000 calories of nuts a day and you're going to be fat. Um, so high quality calories and not too many of them. So I think of calories like money. And you don't want to be fat. Of the 11 risk factors I talked about, being overweight or obese increases six of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so work to be at a healthy weight, not underweight, that's not good, but high quality calories, 
um, healthy protein at every meal because protein helps stabilize blood sugar, healthy fat, as we talked about, um, and smart carbohydrates. Carbs aren't the enemy. It's dumb carbs that are the enemy, you know, like bread and pasta, potatoes, rice, sugar, uh, fruit juice. Fruit juice is not your friend. Um, so all of that, I think most of the really effective, healthy diets, because you, you can do that vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or, you know, I think the issue with red meat is mostly how it's raised and what's your ferritin level. So ferritin is a measure of iron storage. If you have low ferritin, red meat's probably good for you. Mm-hmm. If you have high ferritin, red meat's probably bad for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's like you should know your important health numbers. And all the really effective diets, they get rid of processed foods. Yeah. And they get rid of high glycemic, low fiber foods, which is foods that quickly turn to sugar that are low fiber. That's why they call it fast food, because when you chew it, they've basically taken all the fiber out. It's, you chew it faster, you swallow it faster, and you're out of the restaurant faster. Mm-hmm. That's, everything is faster, and death is faster if that's mm-hmm. your primary um, diet. Yeah. And then cook with brain-healthy herbs and spices. Uh, like I love saffron and cayenne yeah. pepper and oregano and thyme and rosemary. All of those things have brain-enhancing effects. And then if you're struggling with like a mental health issue or a physical issue, you should be on an elimination diet at least for a month. Mm-hmm. Get rid of gluten, dairy, corn, soy, artificial dyes, and sweeteners. And I have to tell you, so many of my patients now have autoimmune disorders. And I'm like, so why is your immune system pissed off at mm. you? Why is it angry? And that doesn't mean you need one of these expensive medications the pharmaceutical companies have designed for you. Yeah. And I'm pretty irritated that the National Institute of Allergy and Infection they study medications and vaccines. They don't at all study diet mm-hmm. as a cause of the rising tide of allergies, eczema, and autoimmune disorders. I'm pretty irritated by that. Um, mm-hmm. We could do better. But those are just sort of the principles. So when you go to order something, now that you know the principles, what's good, what's bad, it's like, is this good for my brain or bad for it? So you're saying that generally, yeah, there's a lot of variety in everyone's recommendations for how to go about it, but the, the general principles that most really agree on is you need to watch your glycemic index and what's spiking that. So sugar, carbohydrates that are um, causing inflammation um, to spike up. You know, like that's, that's like a general category that really everyone's kind of paying attention to. Um, you're also talking about just like fast foods and preservatives. And I mean, that's something that needs to be avoided too. I mean, a lot of that stuff seems pretty self-evident when, when you say it that way too. And it's, it's not, um, it's not like a mystery that red dye number 40 is probably healthy for me. It's, it's titled red dye number 40. <laughs> it's probably, it doesn't sound super healthy. Um, 
but yeah, is, is that kind of what you're saying is like, Hey, there's these general categories that are pretty like maybe intuitive and self-evident and that all these kind of major groups of people that are saying, Hey, try this to be healthy, try this to be healthy, try this to be healthy. There's a common ground here. That's really talking about inflammation and talking about the kind of foods that are healthy for your unique body. Or how would you, right. And then you can adjust it from there. If you want to be vegan or you want to be um, vegetarian, um, and, you know, and generally I'm not a big fan of being vegan because omega-3 fatty acids, you get them from fish and from some healthy meats like lamb. But um, but how it's raised is so important. And too many people, I think the vast majority of people, they were raised with bad habits. And so giving up those bad habits is really hard. And I think, you know, I eat really well. And it probably took me a decade to just sort of figure out, so, you know, I start the morning with a shake. And at lunch today, I had my wife's turkey chili. It was just awesome. I'm so happy with her. Um, And, you know, I just had some nuts as a snack and, a tangerine and I just you just look at each thing and go does it serve me and do I like it mm-hmm. yeah that well, makes sense it's hard yeah you're right I grew up with a lot of habits that weren't super healthy either but you know it was actually kind of interesting so I grew up my mom was Seventh-day Adventist growing up and so she actually had a super healthy diet um you know that just was native to her that was not a very tasty diet though. <laughs> I would, I would say growing up, there's lots of boiled vegetables and, and, uh, I'm, I'm not criticizing my mom. She knew how to cook great, but it was just the, the Adventist dishes weren't my favorite. Um, and then my dad grew up really in this, I don't know, 1970s TV dinner, like ho-hos and Twinkies world. And everything was fast frozen. I don't know. It was, I don't know if it was in fashion back then, but it just seemed like his diet was very much processed um it almost took a lot of delight and excitement and and just the new technologies that were around around processed food and so i kind of grew up with this blend of the two of like these really health there was always something really healthy and really nutritious on the table that me and my brother would avoid and then there was these really delicious like turkey loaf which was um essentially a meatloaf but out of ground white meat dark meat turkey that was i don't know i'm pretty sure the whole thing was just spam with different <laughs> food colorings in it but it's uh there was just that was the world and so i think when i grew up out of um you know the house and went off in my 20s and it was very normal for me to run towards a lot of that fast processed cheap food because i was also poor you know i wasn't like i was i was working part-time going to school and didn't have money to spend like on organic groceries and and uh, frozen taquitos seemed like the most sustaining and cheapest thing I could find. And I think that's a lot of people's story, especially initially. And then if you're, if you're fortunate to, to be able to kind of work your way into an income bracket where you can start to afford organic ingredients and all that, it's, it's not native because you've not only you have this upbringing that's that, you know, either potentially did or didn't, you know, reinforce those good habits, but just the issue of being like 21 or 22 and not having a lot of money, it, it doesn't build those habits either. Um, I don't know. So I guess, Although, maybe- you know, <laughs> Walmart, Target, Costco, they all have organic food that's cheap. 
Mm. It's it's mindset more than anything. Mm. It's when you care. They did a study at Harvard and said to eat really healthy is an extra dollar twenty-five a day, and you'll make that up in getting promoted at work because your brain works better. Oh wow! Yeah, that's a good thought. I never thought of it that. So way. ultimately, it's mindset. It's not money. Um, now, yeah, some people live in food deserts where they really don't have access to great food, and that is oppressive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really living in an oppressive society because if you don't have the nutrients, you won't have the cognitive ability mm-hmm. to overcome the circumstances that you're in. Yeah. Yeah, it's profound. So yeah, would you say to people that maybe kind of feel like, hey, I just can't afford to eat all this, you know, high quality produce and and honestly the convenience foods are all I can afford, that that's kind of a that's a mindset thing. That's a mirage that that really there is it's a mirage. Yeah. I like that word a lot. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book once called The Brain Warrior's Way and with my wife, and we really lay out the argument that you're in a war mm-hmm. for the health of your brain. Everywhere you go, someone's trying to feed you bad food that will kill you early. Um, And they're weapons of mass destruction. Mm. Um, Highly processed pesticides sprayed, high glycemic, low fiber, food-like substances stored in plastic containers. Um, and, And if people just, if they would start to see the war, then they would sort of decide whose side are they on. Are they on the side of early illness or are they on the side of longevity and not lifespan, but health span? Mm -hmm. And the Adventists, uh, one of the blue zones is uh, Loma Linda, where my wife actually um, trained as a nurse and worked on the neurosurgical ICU ward at Loma Linda. And she said she would see these people come in who were 95, who had no wrinkles because of their lifestyle. Hmm. And you would probably, some people would go, well, how can you have any fun? And so we (laughs) play a game with our, we have a high school course called Brand Thrive by 25. And We play a game with the kids called Who Has More Fun? The kid with the good brain or the kid with the bad brain? Mm -hmm. Who gets into the college they want to get into? Mm. Who gets the girl and gets to keep her because he doesn't act like a jerk? Who makes the most money, takes the coolest vacation? Is it the person with the good brain or the person with the bad brain? Mm. And generally, it's the person with the good brain. So let's not talk about, well, how can you have any fun? Because I've seen a whole bunch of obese, diabetic, hypertensive, addiction people, and I can guarantee you they're not having more fun. Mm. Yeah. You think that nutrition makes that big of a difference? It's huge. It's huge. Just to begin to start the day with something that serves your brain rather than, I mean, I grew up with Lucky Charms and Tony the Tiger and, yeah. um, Me too. you know, it's basically sugar. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, kids who have some protein in the morning do better in school. Um, so I think food is huge. And if you get your diet right, it'll decrease the risk for a lot of those 11 risk factors we talked about. Yeah. And one of them is D-diabesity, being overweight or having a high blood sugar. It's a disaster for brain function. And if you just think about it, 72% of Americans are overweight and 50% of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. These are not small statistics. You just don't want to be one of them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, man, I had like three questions pop in my head all at once. You know, something that came to mind as you were talking was, um, I, I do a lot of work with like the ACE studies and, or a lot of work kind of bringing light um, to light the ACE studies and working with trauma. And I have a lot of patients in my clinical practice, but also just a lot of my work in public is talking about trauma. And, and uh, in, in my trauma workshop, I've talked about just the connection between a lot of health issues that we face and also the trauma that we've been through. And that the higher your ACE score, the higher um, the adverse childhood experiences that you've faced as a kid, the more of them you've had, the higher likelihood you have to have all these negative health outcomes. And it didn't dawn on me for like a good couple of years that the reason that is, is because of the psychological makeup of your brain and then how that either inhibits or um, reinforces just kind of healthy functioning, just more globally, just generally. And that when you start to unpack and untangle the trauma, it's not just that the health issues start to kind of evaporate. It's, it's also in part that you start making different choices about how you engage with your body, the, the kinds of foods that you want to eat and emotional eating becomes less of a complex. It's less of a, a need to function in the world that I need to have this alcohol. I need to have this substance. I need to have, you know, that serotonin hit I get from a big bag of chips because well, the emotional world that I'm trying to repress actually is getting lighter and is moving towards healing. And so, um, you know, when we're talking about obesity that's connected to trauma, or we're talking about even just various, I don't know, various health conditions that are connected to trauma, the, the practical outworking of that that I've seen in just seeing my clinical practices, the things that I'm running to to cope with the trauma were some of the things that were killing me. And when the wound is healed, then I don't have to cope in the same way. And then I actually naturally freely make a lot healthier choices um, in a very natural way. I don't know. Have you thought about the connection with emotional eating and trauma and how that reciprocally creates, I don't know, brains that are unhealthy that continue to make negative choices? What comes to mind for you and all that? So I published a number of studies on post-traumatic stress disorder and how it activates the limbic or emotional brain. And people get worried and rigid, and if things don't go a certain way, they get upset. Mm. And eating simple carbohydrates tend to raise serotonin in the brain, just like you said. With chips, uh, you get a serotonin burst, and you feel better short-term, but you feel worse long-term. And so um, I think you have to go at it in both ways. You have to get clean up the food, and they're natural things you can do to increase serotonin. 
right? So sweet potatoes with a little turkey will naturally increase serotonin. Um, but then you also have to talk about the trauma. But but you have to process the trauma, which is why I'm a fan of EMDR um, or other treatments like havening that really help you deal with the trauma and settle down your emotional brain. Um, but it's so much harder to do if you're not eating right or if you're drinking or if you're vaping or smoking. Um, and vaping is so insidious because once people stop nicotine, they have a heck of a time stopping it. Once they start nicotine, they have a heck of a time starting, stopping it. And um, those things prematurely age your brain. So I talk a lot about drip dopamine, don't dump it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're vaping or you're using pornography or um, fame or an affair or drugs and alcohol, you basically are dumping dopamine, wearing out your pleasure centers. And then the normal things in life that make you happy, like seeing your grandchildren, they don't make you happy mm. because your pleasure centers are sort of numb by the behaviors you've engaged in. Fascinating, yeah. Yeah, there's, um, it's, it's fascinating. What, I remember when I first learned about the relationship between alcohol and depression and, and noticing that in a really stark way, just like when people would, you know, either through AA or going to a rehab center or something because they were drinking because they were depressed. Once the alcohol, which is a depressant, is out of the picture, their depression is alleviated in, in large proportions, um, sometimes entirely. And it was fascinating to see that as an object lesson for so many of these things that we run to, to alleviate emotional pain. Being cold. Well, and too many of the treatment programs feed people like crap. And it's like, yeah. no, 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 you're going with a bad brain. Let's feed the, let's nourish the brain so that we can help you be better but well i would suppose the the question that begs though is like you have someone let's say that is dealing maybe with complex trauma um they're overweight they're not happy that they're overweight they're frustrated by that they feel pretty embarrassed and shameful about it they've tried to stop and then you're asking somebody who's maybe regularly having flashbacks or that's depressed or that's really irritated most of the time to give up the one thing that is actually giving them any sort of solace or giving them comfort um, on the promise that, well, their brain will be improved and then they'll feel better later. But there's this initial hump of feeling the cravings, feeling the withdrawals from that. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you say or what's the kind of the plan for the person you were talking about <laughs> the drip or you're talking about the adjustment? But when someone really is in a place where I am dependent, I'm an addict for sugar, I'm an addict for carbohydrates, and I'm trying to use it to cover up a deep pain in me. Um, I need something to satiate or help me alleviate this pain? What do you say in moments like that with people? Yeah, 10 days, two weeks. I mean, it can be challenging, but it takes only 10 days for your taste buds to make themselves new. Where Mm -hmm. if you had an orange now, it wouldn't really taste like much. But 10 days from now, when your taste buds are more normal, it'll explode with flavor. And it's a matter of love. It's like, okay, how much do you love yourself? 
because uh, doing the right thing is ultimately an act of love. And, um, you know, initially it is hard because it's breaking a habit and your brain doesn't know how to do it. And so, God, I have so many stories. Um, one of my favorite stories is Chris. I was giving a lecture in Northern California and she came up to me after the lecture and just started to cry. And that happens to me a lot. And so I just stood there and waited for her to stop crying. And she said, two years ago, her 12-year-old daughter, Sammy, had died of bone cancer. And she had no idea how much it would hit her. And she went to bed and cried and drank and ate bad food. She was 5'2" ballooned up to 200 pounds. And on the two-year anniversary of Sammy's death, she was going to kill herself because she's like, I'm just worthless. And then she saw me on television. Um, I think it was my book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Body. And she said, I'm going to, and she told me this. She said, I'm going to get your book. And if it's a bad book, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. (laughs) I had never felt so much pressure. Mm. And she said, but it was just so simple, right? Eat things that serve your health. Here's the list. Don't eat things that steal your health. Here's the list. I put on my tennis shoes. I stopped drinking. I stopped eating bad food. I started walking. And I'm already down 24 pounds. And... Within three days, I stopped waking up in a panic. And she said, I want you to tell everybody you see that never let grief be your excuse to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And then she'd been down 70 pounds after a year, and it's just done great. It's, it, it, there's so many excuses to hurt yourself. And too often, people are letting the past dominate them, control them. Um, and they, they need to get help to help them. But part of the help is neuroscience. Too many therapists. Do you get any training in neuroscience in your therapy training? I think we had one class, yeah, with some neuroanatomy. None on nutrition. None on nutrition, even though one of the most effective things I do from a psychological standpoint is put people on an elimination diet. Mm-hmm. Ed, that's one guy, he'd had three courses of electric shock therapy and all the antidepressants you can think of, lots of psychotherapy, and he still wanted to kill himself. And I'm like, well, let's get rid of gluten, dairy, corn and soy, artificial dyes and sweeteners and sugar, just for a month. Do you think you can do that? And he's like, okay. And he felt better. Like two weeks into it, he feels better. And so we did it for a month, and I said, now let's just add one thing back at a time. So this week, let's add back gluten. Nothing happened. The next week, we added back dairy. Nothing happened. And then we added back corn. He said within 20 minutes of having corn, he had a vision of a gun in his mouth pulling the trigger. 
So he broke up with corn. So shouldn't that be the first thing we do with people? That if your body really can react to certain foods, shouldn't we get rid of them? Yeah. I mean, yes, we want to do trauma work, and yes, we want to teach people not to believe every stupid thing they think. Absolutely. But if we're being poisoned by something we're sensitive to, mm-hmm. well, let's get rid of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I take a really similar approach because that question of like, well, I, I need this thing. I'm, I'm barely not drowning here. I'm like, I'm just above water. If I give up this thing, then I'll surely drown is, I mean, that's a, that's a script. That's a, that's a commentary from, I don't know, the part of you that's still wanting to be dependent on sugar. That's the microbiome that is craving those simple carbohydrates. And, and that's just not the reality of what you're facing. It's like, there's a, uh, there's a burden that that kind of eating imposes upon you that you that we're blind to that's a lot more covert it's it's a lot harder to notice um the 10 20 percent you know deficit in energy and clarity and it's hard to know how much you uh, you losing your temper last night was because of the pizza versus just because of the situation with your spouse or whatever it's but then it becomes immediately clear like you're saying when you really do go through an elimination diet when you do start to change to some of the ways you're eating um everyone i've talked to including myself in this mode of just the past maybe two or three months of following your recommendations. It's like, man, I just had no idea how much all that stuff was really contributing to the weight that I was feeling. And I was trying to use the drug to satiate and get myself off of the pain that the drug was imposing upon me. And, uh, and that's a pretty powerful aha moment. And when you do that, it, it really does clarify things like the trauma work, things like the, maybe the, the life circumstances and the events that really pushed you to a place of needing those things to cope. You're more sober-minded to be able to actually address them. And in my direction in trauma work, I like, you, I like what you were saying around EMDR or other kind of experiential like you know, trauma treatments that have high efficacy, a lot of data behind them is when you start to actually address and heal the wound, also it has a reciprocal effect in the same kind of direction where um, you don't need the same kind of coping mechanisms. They don't have the same visceral um, power over you in the same way. Because, I don't know, if you're using alcohol to, to comfort you from your marriage that's falling apart, if you actually start to address the marriage, then you don't need the alcohol in the same way. So the, it's like you can approach it kind of from both ends. Um, or maybe the alcohol is the reason your marriage is falling apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you make bad decisions when you drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably both. Yeah. So I like how you approach it on a simple level. It's like, let's just try 10 days. Um, let's just try 30 days. And then that, and you're saying it sounds like that that usually in and of itself is enough of a proof for people to want to dive in deeper because people can see almost immediately. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I want you to be on an elimination diet for the rest of your life. I'm not a big fan of detoxes. I'm a big fan of not eating toxic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this then. Um, a lot of people recommend blood work. A lot of people recommend, um, I don't know, like you were saying, the spec scan. Like it would be good to get in and actually see the effect of my brain, the age of my brain, my biological age, um, and what's affecting what. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. What are your thoughts around blood work and spec scans? And for people who don't know, what is a spec scan? Well, you can't change what you don't measure. Mm-hmm. 
And so SPECT is a study of blood flow and activity. It looks at how your brain works. Um, basically tells us three things, good activity, too little or too much. And then our job is to balance it. If at 29 we see decreases in your parietal lobes or your temporal lobes, it's like, no, no, we have to fix that. So it doesn't progressively get worse and you end up in your 50s or 60s and you're symptomatic. Uh, so SPECT is a leading indicator of trouble where an MRI or a CT scan are lagging indicators of trouble. You know, they show up after you've been in trouble for a long time. Uh, blood work, well, of course, you should have blood work every year and know your testosterone level and your blood sugar and your C-reactive protein. And um, of these 11 risk factors, so I have a mnemonic called Bright Minds, B is for blood flow. Low blood flow is the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease. Well, how would you know if you didn't look? And so I'm a huge fan of we should screen your brain. Um, but we should also measure your blood pressure as well because high blood pressure goes with low blood flow to the brain. Um, the R is retirement and aging. When you stop learning, your brain starts dying. But if your ferritin measure of iron storage is high, mm-hmm. well, you should probably be donating blood. So my ferritin tends to run high, and so I donate blood every six months. And I don't eat much in the way of red meat because red meat has a lot of iron in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the I in Bright Minds is for inflammation. So you can do a blood test called C-reactive protein um, and your omega-3 index. Those things measure inflammation, and I make sure mine are super low. And G is genetics. You had a genetic tests that talked about your risk, but genes aren't a death sentence. What they should be is a wake-up call yeah. um, to get serious and get healthy. Like I know my genes say I'm high risk to die from a blood clot. And so I keep my omega-3 fatty acid levels high, and if I take a really long plane flight, I go on a walk during the flight just to sort of get up and keep the blood flowing properly. Um, H is head trauma, major cause of psychiatric illness that nobody knows about. T is toxins. So just I'm a huge fan of you knowing about your biology because if you want a good mind, you have to have a good brain. And if you want a good brain, you need a good body because your brain is an organ like your heart is an organ. And so if you ask me, say, hey, Daniel, what's the single most important thing you've learned from 200,000 spec scans? That's how many we've done over the last 30 years is most psychiatric illnesses are not mental health issues. They are brain health issues. Get your brain right and your mind will follow. Mm-hmm. Your brain is an organ like your heart is an organ. But, you know, most people who see cardiologists have never had a heart attack. They're mm-hmm. there to prevent them. I see a day where most people who see psychiatrists are there not because they need drugs, but they're there to prevent getting depression. They're there to prevent getting Alzheimer's disease. 
Yeah. Mm. And so, your platform is you're helping to spread that kind of useful information, as opposed to a lot of media platforms that are really about pushing current mental health practices, which is basically, let me give you this or that drug. I'm horrified by what's happened with the pandemic and the increased knowledge, um, acceptance of mental health issues. But with that came an increased number of prescriptions for anti-anxiety drugs, antidepressants. And that's not a good thing. Our psychopharm revolution has not decreased the incidence of mental health problems in the United States. It has increased them. Hmm. Wow. So you would kind of recommend maybe for someone listening that it feels like, oh, okay, I really need to get my brain health to be more of a center point of what I'm focusing on. Start maybe with... That's, that's how we'll end mental illness. Yeah. The end of oh. mental illness will begin with a revolution in brain health. Yeah, it's powerful. So starting with actually having some personalized care, getting something like a spec scan or, or um, blood work done, understanding, okay, what is my unique, like that, like you had a good acronym there. What was it again that you just listed? Bright minds. Bright minds. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of different factors to keep in balance. And yeah, then, you should read my book, Memory Rescue. Okay. If you don't have it, I wrote it just for you. Okay. It's oh, like, okay. I, I have Alzheimer's <laughs> disease in my family. Yeah. I don't want it. What do I do? Right. Well, and I, I was going to ask this as well. So is, do you think there's any distinction between people in my predicament where I'm 30, not necessarily noticing any cognitive decline? Is there a difference in intensity around the kind of steps that you're taking around preventative versus, hey, I really need to make up time because I'm in my 60s. I'm noticing my memory is lost. I need to reverse some of these things. Or is it just across the board? No, just be healthy and eat things that your mind likes. How would you? Oh, no. If you were into the illness, I mean, I'd be putting you in a hyperbaric chamber and max, you know, it's like full court press. If your brain's still relatively healthy, um, I would really not want you to do things to put you at risk for head trauma. Mm -hmm. So I really not want you riding motorcycles or jumping out of airplanes or Mm -hmm. downhill ski racing. I mean, I'd really want you to think about like did you play contact sports when you were little yeah a lot of football and i had like three concussions see i i argue in memory rescue that we should actually screen people for the apoe4 gene and people who have one or two of them shouldn't play football should never hit soccer balls with their head shouldn't be flyers and cheerleading shouldn't put their selves at risk yeah and so given you have the genes and you've had three concussions, where do you live? Uh, Spokane, Washington, Northwest. Yeah. So probably Bellevue, right? you have good a... to get over to Bellevue yeah. and, get a, and get a picture of your brain yeah. and then just work to, if it's awesome, we celebrate and, you know, keep it healthy. And if it's not awesome, we rehabilitate and then mm-hmm. we celebrate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then maybe someone who's, who's here that is thinking, okay, but what could I do today? It's, it's making those general changes to your diet in the meantime, as you get in for those kinds of scans or blood work. And as you take a deeper look, it's, it's um, some of those pillars around diet. Is that what you say? Or how would you put it? Well, today, 
what I want you to do today and for the rest of your life, and, and I don't have any tattoos, but I keep thinking I'm going to tattoo myself. <laughs> one of them, one of the tattoos I would get is this question, is this good for my brain or bad for it? Mm-hmm. And if I loved myself, and I do, um, I would answer it with love. Mm-hmm. Is this good for my brain? Or bad for if I stay up late playing video games? Is that mm-hmm. good for my brain or bad for it? Oh, that's bad. If I'm going to drink alcohol, is that good for my brain or bad? It's bad. I mean, the American Cancer Society came out and said you shouldn't drink because it increases the risk of seven different kinds of cancer. If I'm going to get high tonight, is that good for my brain or bad? It's bad. Um, just answer that question with whatever decision you're going to make and your brain is going to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's good. It's um it's really freeing, you know, to feel like you have some I don't know, some say, like you have you have a, a bit of control. You have so much say given that you know at 29 that you have a high risk you'll make millions of better decisions yeah. if you're smart. Yeah. If you're not yeah. smart, you'll go, okay, there's no hope. Let's have fun. Yeah. And I'll argue you will have more fun with good decisions than bad ones. I mean, and that's the, that's the real sell in my mind. And that's what convinced me. It was like, I don't know, that you'll actually enjoy your life. You'll enjoy the things that you're participating in your life more if your brain is healthy and not trying to combat all of these toxins or all of these preservatives or all of just the um, the disproportionate things that aren't giving your brain the fuel that it needs. It's, it's um, yeah, it's not a mystery to me that, that that's, it's clear as rain, I guess is what I'm saying in my mind. Healthy brain, that's where it starts. Healthy brain, healthy life. Mm. Dr. Amen, I'm really thankful. Thankful you took time to talk. This is great and i'm thankful that we get to even partner together and trying to raise awareness around this stuff and i don't know a lot of people are moving into new year's resolutions and and the beginning of the next year i think this is certainly one of mine was like you said to ask the question um how does this affect my brain it's good i'm thankful thanks for being here thanks for having me If after hearing this, you're in a place where you really want to start making some changes for your health, whether that's brain health, nutrition, or or really any other domain of mental health, I wanted to let you know I'm doing a seven-day motivational challenge starting January 1st. That's totally free, where there's going to be a community of us that are all going to gather together and try to move towards these goals that really matter to us. There's going to be daily videos. There's going to be um, a workbook. There's going to be a live Q&A with me. And what we're going to be doing is just talking about the motivational psychology that you need to know, some of the tools, some of the strategies that would be helpful in moving towards what's meaningful even despite the hardship that you might be facing. So if you're interested, go ahead and sign up at MatthiasJBarker.com or you can find the link in any of the bios um, on my various social media pages. You can find it there too. If I don't see you there, I hope to see you next year on season two of the Matthias J. Barker podcast.